0: Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by the new podcast, Anomaly.
2: Vanessa, one of my favorite YouTube holes to go down is like role play fantasy tabletop multiplayer games where I don't really know any of the people playing but I love watching
3: them have an adventure.
1: Well, Casper, then you would love Anomaly. It's a role playing meditation podcast that takes you into a world of magic and fantasy. You'll be invited to imagine yourself in scenarios such as learning to cast a tranquility spell Ooh. or exploring a land once vanquished by a dragon, but all connected by a shared mythology.
3: I am genuinely going to download this right now. This sounds (laughs) amazing.
1: (laughs) This podcast combines traits of a great dungeon master and those of a talented meditation guide, weaving tales of fantasy that stretch the imagination while you learn to center yourself, offer forgiveness, find confidence, and relieve stress. This is available now on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. It's Anomaly spelled with an I-E at the end and not a Y. Go to S-E-E-K-A-N-O-M-A-L-I-E dot com. That's com to find out more.
4: Chapter 25, The Beetle at Bay. Harry's question was answered the very next morning. When Hermione's Daily Prophet arrived, she smoothed it out, gazed for a moment at the front page, and then gave a yelp that caused everyone in the vicinity to stare at her. What, said Harry and Ron together. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. I'm Hope Hack. And this is Harry Potter in the Sacred Text. Our first announcement is Welcome Hope Rehack, first time on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Hi, thank you. So you, Hope, are on today because you are a huge Harry Potter nerd. You have a lot of brilliant thoughts about this, but also you have a class coming up with Not Sorry. I was wondering if you could just tell people a little bit about the class that you'll be teaching.
5: Yes, I kind of first conceived of it as a sort of history of queer television because I had some undergrad students who- Said something once, like you know, gay people weren't really on TV until Will and Grace, and it it really hurt my feelings. Um, And so (laughs) I I understand why people don't like to necessarily like go back and watch old TV. It can feel like a different pace, and it can feel not as funny. And the comedy doesn't always age well. But I think looking just specifically at sort of queer characters and queer storytelling from kind of the 1960s to the present day, you kind of understand where we came from and where we're going. And so um, we're going to talk
4: about the 60s through the 2020s. It's called The History of Queer Representation in TV. I think it's called A Quick and Dirty
5: (laughs) History of Queer Representation (laughs) in TV, um, because that is absolutely what I hope it is. Awesome.
4: I'm so glad that you are offering that to people and... I didn't realize that people thought that Will & Grace was the first queer representation on TV. So I'm glad you're dispelling people of this notion. Everybody, you can find out more about that by going to notsorryworks.com. And hope we just have to tell everybody about our bonus conversation for today. You and I will be talking about something that happens in this chapter, a holiday that has just recently passed from when this comes out, and that is Valentine's Day. I am wondering if you have any Valentine's Day feelings. I will share my Valentine's Day feelings. We will share whether or not we think Cho and Harry had a representative Valentine's Day for what this holiday is. Can't wait. <laughs> and you can listen to that by signing up at Patreon.com slash Harry Potter's Sacred Text. I'm so excited. No, I taught a Harry Potter class in
5: college. I feel like I've been training for this moment for my whole life.
4: Well, why don't you start us off with an opening story? The theme that we read chapter 25 through is attention. What story do you have for us? Oh, yeah. I kind of like couldn't get enough attention as
5: a child. And I was one of those kids who was always performing and singing and demanding everybody watch me do extremely mundane things. And I love this about me because people wonder if that came from nature or nurture. And it's so obviously nature, not nurture. My parents paid so much attention to me and my siblings. I think a lot of people who are attention seekers as adults, people assume that maybe in their developmental years, they're family didn't give them the attention that they wanted, but I think some people like me have just a bottomless need that can never sort of be satisfied. (laughs) And I think that sounds like a conclusion that you come to after like therapy and reflection, but actually (laughs) I came to this conclusion recently from primary documents. In my dad's recent retirement, he ended up digitizing just dozens of home movies that were on VHS tapes and putting them in a Google drive. And so I've been watching them and they're these like hours long documentaries of my early childhood. And they were made with an intention. My my grandparents lived a few states away, and so my parents would mail these VHS tapes to them. And I'm not sure if what we have are rescues from after those grandparents passed away, or if they're duplicates. But I just love that they're these like very intentional, like almost like vlogs. You know, my parents are sort of (laughs) narrating their parenting, and my sister and I like kind of come in and perform for our grandparents, but in a very I would say undirected way. I don't think my parents were telling us what to do, and so sometimes we're crabby. Sometimes we're awful. And yeah, the bottomless need that's there was kind of shocking to me. And then I was kind of touched because I remember feeling like I could never get enough attention from them, but watching them pay so much attention to me kind of like reframed that for me. And also my father in his first year of retirement, choosing to spend just hours and hours digitizing this when nobody asked him to. Um, And if he hadn't, they probably would have rotted because kind of public service announcement. If you have old VHS tapes, they they actually do degrade and decay and then they're unsalvageable after about 25 or 30 years. So it kind of felt like he was preserving them at the last possible moment with like his first huge chunk of free time. And it was so loving. And again, I think my sister and I were kind of like perplexed, like who needs these? But it the the sort of attention paid felt like love to me and that act of service really feels like love to me. So that's that's my story about attention today.
4: That is one of the definitions that the French philosopher and theologian Simone Weil gives for love, is that love is attention. And she equates prayer, love, and attention. That all prayer is, is like paying close attention to something, and that all love is, is paying attention to something. And so, I don't know. It's like, don't we all have a bottomless need for love? Yeah. Right? Like, there was just something honest about the way you were... Demanding it, but I that just feels true for everyone
5: in Ladybird, too. I think, I think maybe the Saoirse Ronan character says that too. Somebody says love is paying attention, and I was so yeah, g- yeah, yeah, grateful that none is quoting Simone Vey. <laughs> that's right, thank you. Good memory. Okay, yeah, that's what it is. I loved that <laughs>
4: because Simone Ve was Jewish but always flirted with Catholicism, and so this was in conversation with Catholicism that Simone Ve was saying that. But oh, wow, yes, that's I love that. I just think it's something beautiful about children that, like, they're willing to let their need for love be so clear. My friend Amanda has a very independent (laughs) three-year-old who will be like running around and socializing and going around and talking to everyone. And then she runs back to her mom and lays on her mom for like 10 seconds and then goes back out. And Amanda calls it mom recharge station, where it's like she needs to plug herself into this recharge station and go back out. And I feel like we we all need that. And kids are just not trying to perform a version in which that's not true.
5: Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, I've seen toddlers do that. A friend of mine has a has a 17-month-old who does the
4: same thing. It's so cute. It's so sweet. <laughs> well, I do think that there are a lot of different kinds of attention for us to talk about <laughs> in this chapter. But first, we will remind the people what happens in this chapter. We do 30-second recaps. I will go first. Okay. Do you mind counting me in. For sure. Are you ready? I am ready. Three, two, one, go. So, all of these Death Eaters have escaped Azkaban, and Fudge is like, it's Sirius Black's fault because he's related to Bellatrix, and then nobody is figuring out that actually the Dementors aren't have, like, clearly gone over to Voldemort's side. Cho and Harry go out for Valentine's Day, and it is very awkward, and Harry's like, oh, by the way, I have to meet up with Hermione, and Cho is like, are you flipping serious? And also, I want to talk to you about Cedric, and Harry's like, I don't want to talk about Cedric, and then he goes and he meets up with Hermione, and they have a meeting with Rita Skeeter to get his story out bravo thank you thank you oh my god nobody ever says bravo (laughs) i think that was really impressive i think it's really a lot of story to get through thank you thank you
5: do you want to count me in
4: i it would be an honor and a pleasure thank you (laughs) on your mark, get set go
5: um, so there, the trio are at, in the dining hall and they're reading the Daily Prophet and Harry notices that not a lot of the students are reading the Daily Prophet, but a lot of the um, teachers at the head table are. And the stories of the day are about deaf eaters breaking out of Azkaban and a guy who was killed at St. Mungo's by a, a scary devil snare plant that they should have recognized. They experienced some guilt about that. Oh my gosh. Then they go to Hogsmeade and yes. Oh my gosh. I'm running out of time. <laughs> and, then, and then they do what you said. <laughs>
4: I so appreciate when people <laughs> struggle doing their first one because I feel like you can listen to this every week. You start thinking that it's just like Vanessa and Matt, they don't know how to talk. It's stressful. It's stressful. And also I feel like these books are famously extremely plot heavy. There's a <laughs> lot of plot in every chapter. So many things happen in this chapter. I Hope, I do think that there's a place in the chapter for us to talk about exactly what your story was pointing to, right? Which is Harry and Cho and like people wanting a certain kind of attention. Everybody has good intentions and yet this goes so badly, right? Like Harry likes Cho and cares about her and like thinks she's cool. And Cho, same for Harry. And yet like, they just like keep talking past each other and like can't pay each other the right kind of attention. They're at Madame Puttyfoot's, which I feel like just walking into a place called Madame Puttyfoot's, I would be nervous. There's something brilliantly um, cheesy sounding about this place. And then, right, like there are all of these decorations for Valentine's Day. It's a coffee shop that we have never been to in Hogsmeade before. And they arrive, and part of the problem is that this Situation is not ideal for the two of them to have a frank conversation given where they are in their relationship. There are all these other Hogwarts couples there who seem to have had a more established connection than Harry and Cho have. And so there's like all of this comparison going on. There's a lot of things distracting them from the ability to pay each other a productive kind of attention. For sure. But I also like that. I think that rereading it
5: this time and not as a kid, I feel like they are paying each other attention. And there's even a moment where Harry gets frustrated after they sort of have this fight at, at the cafe because he says, like, why would she want to talk about Cedric when it makes her cry? So it's sort of like he is paying attention. He just isn't particularly, let's say, in the moment able to connect the dots. It's such a hmm, evocative or sort of platonic ideal of why a lot of relationships don't work out is the sort of inability to read between the lines of what people are saying. Because I actually think on the literal level, they're really listening to each other. They really are. And Harry's just kind of like, I'm not sure why... You want to talk about this thing that makes you sad. And that's such a reason a lot of people actually do break up. Um, <laughs> because it's like, yeah, I want you to pay attention to what I'm literally saying, but I also need you to hear what I'm saying behind the words that I'm saying, which maybe in this moment, Harry's not able to do. But like you said, everyone's so well intentioned in this scene. And even Cho, there's a moment that really reminds me of being a teenage girl when Cho is like, I could have dated Roger Davies. Like,
1: you know, <laughs> I,
5: he's over there kissing someone else, and I'm kind of hot. And And of course, Harry knows that like Harry had a thing for her for a long time. He's not dating her out of pity, but she's kind of reminding him of her sort of social capital at Hogwarts. And he kind of gets annoyed by that. But it's that's a fair point to bring up. (laughs) Like I'm choosing to be here with you.
4: Especially because it's like, and you're choosing to go be with Hermione, right? He's 15. I'm not mad at him for not saying this in a different way. You know, it's probably a part of our work. It's part of the DA. You know, like there's a way to sell Cho on this and like be like, oh, you should come with me to Hermione. I bet it's going to be a really important conversation. She doesn't ask things like this unless they're important. You know, like, and like, I want you to be part of it. But instead, yeah, he's not paying attention to what she might need to hear. He knows all the information. He knows it's entirely platonic between he and Hermione. And so he's like, not like, oh, what would it feel like if I was on a date with somebody and they had plans with another person in the middle of my day, right? Like-
5: yeah, and to sort of armchair psychoanalyze these fictional children, I do think Harry's a person at this point in his development that is like a really good friend. I think he's, he's really, like, that's one of his strengths is he's a good friend. Is he a good boyfriend? No. In fact, I'm not sure we ever really see him be, evolve into a good boyfriend in the span of the seven books. But that's like not his primary, let's say, focus. I think he's really, really good at showing people the love and attention they need platonically. And I think this is maybe like a language he doesn't yet speak. Yeah. <laughs> I feel pretty bad for both of them in this situation because I do think they're doing their best and I do think their best is not good enough for each other.
4: Right. Cho is so alone in this, right? Like, we know she's basically forcing Marietta to come to DA practice with her. I just, I would imagine that a lot of people just don't know how to talk to her about what happened with Cedric. At the beginning of the chapter, Pansy Parkinson, like, makes a really nasty comment about it. Like, why are you going out with Harry? At least Cedric was good looking, right? I just feel like she is so isolated in her grief. And... Yeah, of course she needs some extra TLC. And it makes sense that she's going to Harry, this guy who, you know, we know she would have gone to the Yule Ball with him if he had asked first. And also, like, he was there when her boyfriend died, right? Like, it it makes sense she's going to him. And sometimes I feel like you can, right? Like, we can go to certain people needing a special kind of attention. And just because of they're hungry or they've had a bad day or this triggers something really precise in them, they can't. When my dad was really sick, I reached out to see a therapist because I was really struggling with it. And it turned out that my dad was sick in a very similar way to the way her father was sick. And so she kept talking to me about her dad. She eventually was like, I don't think I'm the right therapist for you in this moment. Like, I can't listen to you talk about your dad in this way without needing to talk about my dad. And I was like, cool. And that took a lot of training for her to be able to say that. So I think fair that Harry and Cho can't figure out how to say that to each other. As young teenagers. But yeah, I was thinking about this. Like
5: if they were even a little older, I have friends that in their twenties. Um, yeah. A friend of mine, his girlfriend passed away unexpectedly in their early twenties. And he years later ended up marrying her best friend. And I think maybe some people don't understand that or find it difficult to imagine how that felt for those two people, but it's been really Incredible to sort of watch them heal with each other and seeing that mature into an adult romantic relationship. They're now married. And I do think that it kind of harkens back to what I think is an Ashkenazi Jewish practice, but of, you know, sometimes when you're widowed or a widower, you're supposed to marry like the sibling of the person who passed away. And I think that's another thing that maybe in a modern setting or a modern psyche, it's hard to wrap your head around. But watching my friend go through that, I sort of understood that practice a little bit better.
4: Yeah. I love that as an explanation of Cho's instinct, right? And that Harry is like, nope, can't. What? Like romance, different part than grief. Yeah. can't You know, like can't do both of these things at the same time. Whereas like that is working for Cho. And yeah, both are just such reasonable responses. But Cho is paying attention to Harry, right? She points out to Harry, she's like, don't you think it's weird that there aren't any dementors, you know, wandering around in Hogsmeade, given how many Dementors there were when Sirius Black was on the loose. And that is what allows Harry to be like, oh my God, yes, the Dementors didn't just let the Death Eaters out. They are actively on Voldemort's side because otherwise they, in theory, would be working for the ministry and looking for these escaped convicts. And I do think that Part of Cho's attention to Dementors actually is in her care for Harry. She was the one who protected him in Book Three when Draco was pretending to be a Dementor, but she thought there were Dementors and that Harry was going to fall off of his broom. And she like reaches out across team and is like, "Harry, be careful!" Right in this like, and so I do think that that occurring to her shows that she was like worried about Dementors being in Hogsmeade because she was worried they were going to have a negative impact on Harry, right? Like it's actually showing the depth of her attention to him. And I think that often we are loving and taking care of each other in ways that we don't notice about one another.
5: Yeah. And I remember when I was a teenager and some relationship wouldn't work out. I remember, I think it was my mom, but somebody telling me that so much of that is about timing. And I sort of maintain that Cho and Harry could have had a very healthy relationship at another time in their lives. And their timing is just so bad. So, so bad. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Also, I mean, I feel like we have to talk about the Daily Prophet and Rita Skeeter. There's a lot of journalism in this chapter, and you know, what is above the fold, what is being spoken about, right? Like these are all things that we are like keenly aware of as attention and like the attention economy, you know, as we call it now. Mm -hmm. And I am wondering what you think, like what is happening in terms of attention and, you know, the daily profit in journalism in this chapter?
5: Well, I actually love this so much because I do think on a sort of macro level, It's a little mini lesson about teaching kids some media literacy. And basically, I mean, I remember reading this in 2003 and there was a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, politics happening around me and a lot of news. And I do think that this chapter sort of teaches you that what you're reading in the paper isn't necessarily the whole story. And that's a good thing to remember because I think Rita Skeeter says pretty baldly that, you know, they're not going to print anything that the Ministry of Magic doesn't want them to print. And that's a really good thing for these 15-year-olds to learn at this particular time and what's going to shape up to be a war that they're very much involved in, sort of to be critical of what's being put out there. And then at the same time, really be thinking about how it's strategically put out there, which I feel like Hermione's of course, leagues ahead on this by getting her to write Harry's story for the Quibbler and just saying, you know, it's important that the truth is out there, whether it's in a mainstream publication or on a sort of alt-weekly like the Quibbler, um, at least there's a place <laughs> people can go for a different, she says it almost explicitly, like a different A different perspective on what's happening.
4: Yeah. I mean, Rita Skeeter, what's so interesting is that she says, first of all, fudge is leaning on the paper hard. And second, it's not the way the wind is blowing. That's not what people want to hear. And like the daily profit at the end of the day is there to make money. And like, sorry, kids, like this idea that you have the free press, like the attention economy is an economy and like you have to be able to do both at the same time. I do think that this is a tough moment for Harry, who hadn't necessarily been thinking about it in those stark of terms. Whereas for Hermione, she's like, yep, duh. So let's move on to the next you know, thing in the agenda. Right. <laughs>
5: let's leverage this. Let's use this. Let's hijack this.
4: Yeah, like obviously. And we see that like, The Prophet is doing Fudge's bidding in terms of saying Fudge says that Sirius is how they got out, so that's it, right? And, like, there certainly isn't any, like, investigative journalism happening here. Like, no one is being interviewed at Azkaban as to what happened, right? Like, they have a single source seemingly. Mm-hmm. And and like this, what we suspect to be murder of this patient at St. Mungo's isn't being investigated. Again, it's just like one source is telling the Daily Prophet one thing. And so I feel like that is one of the signs of a propaganda machine instead of, you know, like a free press is this like single source journalism essentially printing press releases mm-hmm. as if it was news. Yeah,
5: and I think also the fact that the trio have the added context of knowing Sirius and and just knowing for sure that that's not what's happening kind of gives them insight that maybe to their credit, the rest of the wizarding world doesn't have because everybody still thinks that Sirius is a fugitive and, and you know, doesn't know about his complicated relationship with his family and doesn't know that he would never do that for Bellatrix. That's that's like insight that only they and then by extension we have. So it's it's helpful because it helps us see the lie more clearly the way that they're sort of realizing it's, it's a lie. Yeah. And it kind of reminds me of like, almost, it does remind me of pandemic coverage where it's sort of like, okay, well, if there's nothing we can do about it, I'd rather believe this comforting propaganda than feel helpless in the face of something that is out of my control. Like that's a comfortable, a more comfortable place for an audience to be, I think.
3: And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. The last
4: place that I think we really see attention playing out in a deeply complex way in this chapter is with Umbridge. So Umbridge in this chapter has a new educational decree. She is stopping a flow of information that she doesn't want to go. She says that teachers can only talk about their exact field of study and they can't talk about anything outside of their field of study. And so this means that like, McGonagall can't be talking about umbrage in politics, right? Like this is a way of trying to further silo people, which we know is like a way to gain control over people and for fascism to rise. And it's so funny because in theory, what she's saying in her doublespeak is only talk about your field of study and therefore you will be learning more. You will be teaching more. The kids will be educated more because their attention will only be on transfiguration and will only be on history of magic and you know charms but instead we know what's happening and instead everybody's just paying attention to umbridge mm-hmm. and that Is just one of the most maddening things to me when people constantly are explaining to you why their policy is designed a certain way rather than being like, oh, let me look at the policy and redesign it if it's not having the desired effects or just admit it, Umbridge, just say what you're doing. One hundred percent. And also, I think it's so interesting because like, I don't
5: think she's a speaking of a previous um, theme of one of your episodes, but she's not intellectually humble in any way. So I actually do think that she might actually think this, but it's much like a lot of sort of educational policy that doesn't have the input of the people in the classrooms. It has a completely different impact than its intended effect. I I think maybe she clocks it, but even then, nothing's going to keep her from believing that this policy is going to be beneficial to the students. And my favorite moment from that, like, sort of sequence in the chapter is Lee Jordan giving her a hard time (laughs) and being kind of, you know, transgressive in his Lee Jordan way and just saying, like, you're not allowed to discipline us for having these practical. Joke, you know, whatever they are, they're like crackers or something in the classroom. And he's like, That's not your subject. So, what are you talking about?
4: (laughs) I loved it. It was sorry. It seems as though you're paying attention to the wrong thing. You should only be paying attention to defense against the dark arts, and you should not be paying attention to this. And oh my God, there's just nothing better than someone calling out someone else's hypocrisy. And I even love that Umbridge's only answer to that is violence, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's heartbreaking for Lee and this is abuse and disgusting, but you know when someone has resorted to violence rather than like answering in an argument that they, like, it is an admission of losing. 100%, yeah, 100% And, and an exertion
5: of power because you have lost the, yeah, the intellectual argument.
4: Yeah. Typical bully behavior. Yes. Lee Jordan, I do think, is like the great communicator using attention again and again for the right things. Whether he has the megaphone at a Quidditch match or here, or we'll see him later as a radio personality. Like, this is a guy who takes his moments in which he has a megaphone and uses it, even when it's like immaturely used or whatever, with like so much intention.
5: Yeah, he's such a he's such a Gryffindor. I feel like he is not cowed by anybody in any of these books. He's never really scared or if he's scared, he doesn't let it impact his material actions in the world.
4: So Hope, we are going to do Sacred Imagination, which is a reading practice that goes back to St. Ignatius of Loyola. And the way that we do it on the podcast is that I will read you a longer section of the text, a couple of pages, and what I will ask you to do is to imagine yourself in the text, either like paying attention to your senses or new emotions that you haven't noticed before. You can be a fly on the wall, you can get into the head of one of our characters, and then we... We will discuss what we maybe noticed for the first time because we've paid this like different visceral kind of attention. Sounds good? Sounds so fun. So this section everybody is we're in the great hall. Ron, Harry, and Hermione have just finished reading the article about the escapees from Azkaban and this is now their conversation. There you are, Harry, said Ron looking awestruck. That's why he was happy last night. I don't believe this, snarled Harry. Fudge is blaming the breakout on Sirius? What other options does he have, said Hermione bitterly. He can hardly say, Sorry everyone, Dumbledore warned me this might happen. The Azkaban guards have joined Lord Voldemort. Stop whimpering, Ron. And now Voldemort's worst supporters have broken out too. I mean, he's spent a good six months telling everyone you and Dumbledore are liars, hasn't he? Hermione ripped open the newspaper and began to read the report inside, while Harry looked around the Great Hall. He could not understand why his fellow students were not looking scared, or at least discussing the terrible piece of news on the front page, but very few of them took the newspaper every day like Hermione. There they all were, talking about homework and Quidditch, and who knew what other rubbish, and outside these walls, Ten more Death Eaters had swollen Voldemort's ranks. He glanced up at the staff table. It was a different story here. Dumbledore and Professor McGonagall were deep in conversation, both looking extremely grave. Professor Sprout had the prophet propped up against a bottle of ketchup and was reading the front page with such concentration that she was not noticing the gentle drip of egg yolk falling into her lap from her stationary spoon. Meanwhile, at the far end of the table, Professor Umbridge was tucking into a bowl of porridge. For once, her pouchy toad's eyes were not sweeping the Great Hall looking for misbehaving students. She scowled as she gulped down her food, and every now and then, she shot a malevolent glance up the table to where Dumbledore and McGonagall were talking so intently. Whew! Hope I feel like I would have been some dumb student being like, oh my God, can you believe how much homework they gave us last night? I just feel so strongly that that would have been my vibe. What did you notice? I
5: I don't mean to put myself in direct opposition, but I kind of the opposite, like the only indication of anyone being really what I would describe as anxious is when we, we hear from Hermione that Ron whimpered at some point. And I know the implication is that it's because she's using Voldemort's voice, I understand. But I do love that. I think Ron is very underloved and I love Ron. And I do think, you know, his sense of humor and intelligence often are working in tandem with his anxiety. And I think of the trio, I mean, Hermione's anxious in a sort of perfectionist type A way, but I think that Ron is an anxious person who's so, so brave because He's constantly working against the messaging he received at home and in wizarding society to be friends with these weirdos. You know, Hermione and Harry having no problem saying he who must not be named is counterprogramming to everything that Ron grew up hearing. And so that moment, I really identify with him being nervous and Harry looking around and saying, no one else is nervous. Your best friend is nervous. Your best friend is nervous by the mere mention of a name. He's And Ron has the full context and he is accurately reacting the way that Harry thinks people should be reacting. And so I guess in that moment, I was really thinking about being a teenager and being overwhelmed with anxiety and sort of like the smell in the Great Hall of, I'm sure, a lot of anxiety BO from everyone. And even if it's just from like, you know, (laughs) kids who are worried about their homework, it kind of all, you know, that sort of teenage smell mixing with like the food, mixing with like the musty old Hogwarts wood and fire and uh, who who knows what else
4: going on there i was really I was really feeling close to ron in that moment i have come to love ron a lot i had a really hard time with him at first and now i'm like this is a kid who's really trying and what else did we want except a kid trying his best i think that you know as much as i was like i know that if i was in this room i would be one of those kids who was just like talking about quidditch i very much like in my body felt for harry Mm. who right like we've all had these moments where we look up and wonder how life is going on for other people right it's like don't you understand we just got this huge piece of news everything is different and how are you all behaving as if it's not and like incredulity combined with like righteous indignation, right? Like it's very like in my throat, just like choking on it. Mm. And then just that like feeling of some relief of like, well, at least Professor Sprout like can't even eat her egg, right? Needing that external validation of a big emotional reaction
5: Mm.
4: and like having a piece of calm of like, okay, I'm not making this up. I'm not out on a limb all by myself. Like, McGonagall and Dumbledore are clearly talking about this, and Professor Sprout is clearly upset about this, like, I'm not making it up, I think can just be, like, such a calming effect, right? Like, having someone say, like, I see you, I see your reality, like, I see it too. You know, we've seen the power of it recently with other people seeing the Thestrals, but I feel like Harry is constantly being asked to hold a truth that other people are doubting. And so... I'm just like imagining the relief he must feel that like out in the open, adults are projecting the same reality. Oh, yeah. That makes sense.
5: And also the relief of being a kid who's feeling anxiety and seeing that the adults are also anxious. That just feels, I guess, a relief is was one word for it.
4: I feel like, yeah, that's a relief and terrifying, right? You're yes. like, okay, I'm not wrong to be anxious, but oh, God, even you don't know what to Totally, yeah. Well, Hope, thank you so much for doing the sacred reading practice. Thank you
5: for inviting me. It's so funny because when I hear you do that on other episodes, I always think about how that's how I always read, like especially these books, especially as a kid. I used to insert, I did like self-insert, not literal fan fiction, but imagining myself as like a random Hogwarts student passing by. So I was so happy that we did this.
3: And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or Mc Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.
2: Hi, sacred text team. My name is Nat and I use she, her pronouns. I'm calling from Argentina in response to your episode on visibility. The Havruta question made me go straight to the concept of neurodivergent masking, which is the ability to consciously or unconsciously suppress natural responses to hide neurodivergent traits and fit in. And it is exhausting. During your conversation, Vanessa mentioned the tongue's ability to change her looks to blend in is useful, and while I agree with that, I also think about the toll it takes on her. The text tells us she often uses it to entertain people, so I wonder, is this painful? Does she want to do it, or is it just a way for her ability to not be seen as threatening? I would love to hear your thoughts on those questions. I'm 32, and I didn't know about neurotypes until earlier this year when reading about it. I realized that I identify with a lot of autistic traits, like masking. Misinformation and gender biases result in women and transgender people being underdiagnosed until we find this information by ourselves. And it is possible that after finding out you have been masking, you would have a huge identity crisis. This is something I have been struggling with. So when Matt said that what is real is whatever is in front of you, I suddenly felt validated. Like my mask is a part of me that I can appreciate as something I developed to be able to exist in the world. And being aware of it just gives me new tools. As Vanessa beautifully said about the Bogart, I think this can also be a form of self-creation. So I want to thank you guys for that discussion. It gave me a much-needed load of self-acceptance. And thank you for the podcast. You are a blessing for us. Bye. Nat, thank you so much for
4: that beautiful voicemail. And I really love your questions around Tonks and like, does it hurt to be a metamorphagus and to change in that way? Does it cost her anything? And is this a coping mechanism that she has by entertaining other people with it? I think that those are really touching and perceptive questions for us. And I think it's also a reminder that like, We just really never know what's going on for somebody else. And so I just want to, yeah, thank you for highlighting that. And thank you so much for your beautiful message.
5: I don't know if it's appropriate to sort of recommend something else, but this discussion about Tonks really reminds me of the graphic novel and then later Netflix movie, Nimona by Andy Stevenson. But it's about a shapeshifter. And there's, uh, I think it's mostly probably a trans allegory, but it is very much about people who sort of need to Ch- change forms. That the main character is is a little girl who can become a dragon, and it, this discussion is a huge part of the plot of both the book and the Netflix adaptation. And it's a really wonderful exploration of these ideas that I, I think are in this call. And and I love I love this idea. I just feel like what we know about Tonks is so little, and other people have you know written sort of similarly uh, about similar characters. I'd love to know more. I'd also read a standalone to- Tonks novel, for what it's worth. I would read a standalone <laughs> Tonks novel. <laughs> Who wouldn't?
4: It's now time for us to honor members of our community who have been loved and lost. Gerald Dahlman, who is 90, a husband, father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and general of Grandpa Dahlman's Boot Camp. Joan Halley, who was 83, a loving grandmother who celebrated everyone. Elizabeth's three babies, never born, precious, wanted, cherished, and remembered. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Hope, we now get to offer a blessing for a character in the chapter. Who would you like to bless? You know what? Let's let's bless. I really want to bless Cho. I,
5: I think Cho is going through it and, and needs it and is another character I would read an entire series about. I think she's really smart and really sensitive and gets the short end of the stick here. And we know that she's going to have future um, romantic partners who see her more fully and appreciate her better. So I want to offer it to Cho.
4: Yeah. This is a tough year for her. This is going down as a tough, tough couple years. Hope, I know we talked about him a little bit, but I really want to bless Lee Jordan because he is speaking truth to power to Umbridge and like calling her out on her nonsense, but he is also an inspiration in resistance. Fred and George are going to leave Hogwarts in this like great way and say give her hell peeves right like and we think of Fred and George as sort of like being on the cutting edge of that but Lee Jordan is also like putting himself on the line in order to diminish the power and credibility of Umbridge Mm -hmm. and I just think it's incredibly brave and really moving when people are scared and do the brave thing and so I want to shout out Lee Jordan for I don't know being like a real leader in this and doing it with humor. We love Lee. I know. Why is he so great? <laughs> Next week, we are going to be reading Book 5, Chapter 26, Seen and Unforeseen, through the theme of Doubt with Matt Potts. Our big reminder before we say goodbye today is that hope ReHack is going to be teaching a class, A Quick and Dirty History of Queer Representation in TV. You can find out more about it at notsariworks.com. It's going to be amazing. We also have an amazing class with Taylor Bueller called Showing Up for Queer Kids. And you can also sign up for that at notsariworks.com. You can always subscribe for ad-free episodes at Apple Podcasts or through our Patreon at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister. We are edited and produced by AJ Aramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. We are distributed by ACast. A special thanks this week to Hope Rehack, ah! to Nat for sending in her voicemail. To Ariana Nettleman, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Wilson, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, <laughs> Matt Potts, Casper Turk Kyle, Courtney Brown, Natalie Folkerts, Stephanie Paul Cell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you next week. One day you and I will have a podcast called Mamma Mia 2 is a sacred text. It is absolutely a sacred text. I could not believe anything more in my spirit.
3: <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> ah.